Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Sorry to shout at you like that. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here once again and thank you for supporting the Trust. Um, very well, welcome. Well, <laughs> I'll go to the back and start again. A very warm welcome to our non members this evening. It's fabulous to see you. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Steve Clark and I have the pleasure of organising and hosting these series of talks. Uh, incidentally, I was chatting to Tim Morris today. This is our 70th talk that we've organised in the last three years. And so, uh, a big thank you for your continued support. We'll talk more about that later. Now, in life, timing is everything, and nothing more so than here at Brooklyn's with these talks. And I started discussing, I think, this uh, with you in about a year ago, didn't we? And uh, we thought that December might be a good time to hold this talk. And uh, judging by the activity in Cornwall back in the tail end of October, November, I think we're pretty spot on the money. So, so thank you very much indeed. It makes us feel very welcome to, to see so many friendly faces. Um, I'm here as a bit of a fraud, so, so I'm the um, president of the Supporters Club for, for Bloodhound Supersonic Car, uh, and Ron does all the work. So, so, so our, our double act here is that I'll do most of the talking, and then Ron will correct me when I get things wrong, and he'll also answer all hard questions. Is that, is that fair, Ron? I'll leave those to so I thought I'd start by really what some of our objectives are for the project itself. Uh, you'd think that a, a land speed record project would be all about trying to break the land speed record. In actual fact, that's the third of our primary objectives. And really the first one is to inspire a new generation of, of young scientists, technologists, engineers and mathematicians. And, and really, I'd say a good 50 or 60% of our overall program is orientated towards trying to inspire young people to consider careers in what we believe is fantastic uh, industry. And the next part really is to share the iconic projects and, and really to provide all of the development and, and, uh, and material to anybody who wants it. So if you go on our website, you've actually got run information of what was happening in the car. When we actually run the car for, for at high speeds, we'll, we'll have all of the data being downloaded from the car available to everybody. And then our last one really is to set a new land speed record and make sure the Americans, the Australians, and anybody else who wants to have a go stands absolutely no chance whatsoever. <laughs> um, the land speed records, um, world's fastest car. So an unrestricted design, um, must have four wheels. There's a lot of other restrictions associated with it, and it's the average of, of a turnaround um, through a measured mile. We have over 300 companies in our supply chain building component parts for us. A lot of those are done for free. Uh, as part of a sponsorship deal, and, and a lot of it really is to showcase British engineering. A lot of the engineering that we use is, is in areas where you can't normally publicise because it comes from the military or it comes from Formula One, but because we're a completely public organisation and everything is available, we make all of that data. So, so we're a very open community in terms of providing that access. Um, fascinating, we've held in UK, um, we've held in the UK for 71 out of the last 119 years of the Landsbury record. And, and it's even more impressive, the, the thrust team, which is really the team that we put together to, to take the new land speed record back, um, has held the, the record continuously for the last 34 years. You imagine a football team that's never been defeated for the last 34 years on an international stage. That's how impressive the team is in terms of what, what they've achieved. And yet, because it's engineering, it doesn't necessarily get the presence and, and necessarily the amount of coverage that, that we believe that it should do. We're trying to do good things. We're trying to promote the UK as, a, as an industry. And, and really, it would be really nice if, if we could find more people to get behind us and actually drive this message through. The really encouraging thing is that we're doing a fantastic job in terms of encouraging young people. I can't come here without talking about the history. Um, obviously, you've got John Cobb of Brooklyn's uh, 24-litre magnificent car, one of my favourite cars in the world, um, average speed of 143.44 miles an hour. Uh, Ron, you did a lot of work at, at Brooklyn's in, in terms of the early start, start of the project. I just wonder if you could just cover that for me. Oh yes, I joined uh, Brooklyn's as a volunteer in 1991, which is soon after the museum started, and uh, we were at that stage picking the grass out between the concrete and everything else. But um, I... Um, found in the archives uh, all the uh, wind tunnel tests from the Vickers Armstrong wind tunnel. And as a, an aerodynamicist myself, 
I uh, volunteered to catalogue all that lot. It took me two years, and I did. But the relevant part was that there were wind tunnel tests on Bluebird, Golden Arrow, Silver Bullet, Thunderbolt, um, as well as all the aircraft. So I studied those, and as a direct result of that, I met Richard Noble and worked on the design of Thrust SSC and then JCB, Diesel Max, and here. So you can say quite definitely that all our land speed record activities are directly as a result of my activities here at Brooklands. So um, museums are not just record, uh, you know, recording what happened in the past, they can initiate what's happening in the future as well. But it didn't start there. It started in France uh, at 39.24 miles an hour. Um, the bicycle record was 10 miles an hour faster at that time. Uh, that was the first time the French ever held the record. Uh, they got it once, walked away and never tried again. So history repeats itself. And then we come to some of the, the cars that Ron was actually talking about. So Golden Arrow, 231 miles an hour on Daytona Beach. Um, almost as fast as a Bugatti Veyron goes today, but in 1929, they were running that on a beach at those sorts of speeds. Quite incredible, brave people. We then come into the, the dynasty from the previous video that you were watching, uh, into the Bluebird dynasty. We're pushing 300 miles an hour, and again, we're still doing it on beaches. Just again, quite incredible vehicles, and hugely brave people actually running those types of cars at those sorts of speed. And I think some of the, the artwork and things also captures, captures the image of the age. And I'm, and I'm hoping that as part of our record, we also capture the essence of what we're doing in terms of the, the 21st century and some of the technology associated with it. We then come on to, to, to the dynasty that we're really talking about. And interestingly, it doesn't capture as many people's minds. If you, if you talk to people of a particular generation and you ask about land speed record, it tends to be the Campbell dynasty. Uh, yet we've held it for all of those years continuously in, in a really competitive environment. So the dynasty of Noble and Green, I, I think, is something that, that we should really praise and we should recognise. And, and again, magnificent people, hugely brave, and I think are doing a fantastic thing for promoting the UK. But it also started in a strange place. So Thrust One was Richard Noble's first car. He describes it as a, as a rocket car, sorry, as a jet car. Um, a go-kart with a, a jet engine tied on the back of it, which he tried to go as fast as he could up and down a runway until he crashed. Um, apparently in land speed record terms, what you then do is you sell it, uh, you've got 50 pounds for it, you go down the pub, and then what you do is you decide to build something better. And the something better was this magnificent vehicle here, Thrust 2. Really beautiful. And this is heading, this is out of one of Richard's um, personal pictures. This is heading into the measured mile. He's just about to come up to around about 630 miles an hour, continues to go through the measure miles at that point. The really interesting thing about the work that Ron was talking about was he was around about nine miles an hour off takeoff. Is that, is that? That's right, another nine miles an hour, and he had done a backflip. So, so, whenever you hear Richard do these presentations, you always say, and it's really nice to be here. Um, <laughs> So this is, this is what you can also do. You can go to Coventry Museum. So this is, this is where Thrust, um, Thrust 2 is. Uh, there's lots of interesting stories. We, we hold the world record for the fastest uh, delivery um, vehicle for potatoes because we had to balance out the two vehicles. And in other words, you had a driver on one side and you had to have compensation of potatoes on the other side. And there's all sorts of other really nice stories. There's a really good video over there that if you're stuck for something for Christmas to buy yourself, obviously, um, then, then please come and buy it. But it's, it's a really good story in terms of uh, the adversity that he's pushing through. The next part was in Thrust SSC. Richard made a huge decision, which I believe um, he couldn't run the program and drive the car. So what he decided to do was to run the program and then ask for somebody else to drive the car. In actual fact, Andy Green was named at Brooklyn's Museum. I remember bringing my son, who's the small person there in the red stripy jumper. He's now 28 and he's a foreign exchange dealer in the city. Um, <laughs> He wouldn't wear that shirt now because he's a Chelsea supporter. Um, but, but the important thing about that was, I think, that the whole inspiration behind that project was to make it as open as possible. You imagine at McLaren's or Formula One, any of the Formula One teams, uh, to have a young child help to push the car back in the, back in the hangar just wouldn't happen. To allow some young child to sit in the car and then have the signature of the person that's going to drive it at the fastest speed ever known on land is just something that, that was just awe-inspiring. 
And I think what we've tried to do with our project is to move that whole process forward in terms of making sure we recognise that for the future and making it as open as we possibly can and inspire not only young people, but also to make it a whole family event. Trust SSC was a, was a fantastic vehicle. Um, this is it coming over the horizon, so this proves that the Earth is round because you can't see the car, you can only see the dust that's coming up. Um, we, there's also something else missing from this video, and that's because there's no sound, and that demonstrates that sound travels much faster, that light travels much faster than sound. You then start to move forward, and we should get the sonic booms in a moment. proving the pressures that are building up around the car and, and the hostile environment in which it's working. So just on that really short piece of video, what you're actually doing is talking about a lot, an awful lot of science. You can see the dissipation in terms of the, um, uh, the, the ground underneath the car, where the surface itself is being destroyed by the pressures of the car being pushed. And you can see on this particular um, uh, picture, which I really like, you can actually see the sound, um, the, the shock waves, coming at either side of the vehicle. But what the person that forgot was that um, he was flying a little microlight trying to take those pictures. And because the light was so good, he forgot all about that the shock waves also go up. And it tumbled him over three times he thought he would die. Um, he's not going to film it again for Thrust SSC, um, but what is for, for Bloodhound SSC. Um, but really, what we're going to do now is we're going to use drones and we're going to use other things which we can destroy. And also the camera technology is now significantly different and the recordings are fantastic. So 1997 was the last time that the record was set. I think it's a beautiful vehicle. Um, and, and again, you can go and see that in Coventry Museum. The design of these vehicles is really what it's all about. Um, we're very lucky at the Build Centre. We've had some fantastic people come to see us over the years, Ron, haven't we? Just quite awe-inspiring. Sure. Yeah. Um, Neil Armstrong came to see us, and, um, and I'm a huge Neil Armstrong fan. And, and he stood in the queue waiting to, waiting to shake my hand. And I sat there and I thought, I have absolutely no question that I can ask this man he hasn't heard before. So I shook his hand and said, thank you very much. But as he was talking to us, and he was really asking a lot about the rocket systems, a lot about the propulsion, he was extremely intelligent and, and asking really in-depth questions and making some apologies for doing it. Uh, but he came up with this, this quote, which I thought was really important, that the data is key to pushing boundaries. Uh, work out what you need to do and then build it from the start. And that's very much the mentality, particularly Ron's done, in terms of all the design he's done for, the, for, the, uh, for this particular vehicle. So what we've done here is, is that Ron starts with, with some beautiful things. So I don't know if you want to explain, Ron, what you're, what you're doing here. Uh, I can't remember that picture, so I don't know. <laughs> um, so, so this is the YouTube video, which is right, just yeah, magnificent. Are, are you going to run the YouTube or No. No, fine, okay, right. Um, no, I'm describing uh, why the car is the shape it is, and um, I'm pointing out that uh, you can start off with a nice, simple theoretical shape, uh, but by the time you've uh, put in uh, or chopped off the back end, so you've got somewhere for rockets to come out and jets, and uh, put a, a, a jet intake and somewhere for the driver to see. Obviously, you need some wheels put under those as well. You end up with a much more complicated shape than anything you could do theoretically. So um, th that was a video I was doing explaining. Um, why the car is in fact that shape, and um, it's no nothing mathematical at all, purely practical. And then from my perspective, if you want to go in and have a look at any of the YouTube videos, again, Ron has a real gift for, for being able to explain really complicated things in, in a way that's understandable to both young people and interesting enough for old people like me. But what we have to do is move from that sort of conceptual design to actually trying to do a proper design in terms of what we do. Wind tunnels are extremely difficult for us because we can't have a thousand miles an hour rolling road. Um, to, to do models of the car again doesn't really replicate the, the flows that are going under the vehicle. So what we have to use is mathematics. Uh, that's a young gentleman called Ben Ayres. He's a professor. Uh, he still looks about 10, which is really annoying. Um, and, and this is the type of beautiful mathematics that, that, that Ben uses. So this is the Navier-Stokes equation. And this is to, for, for the calculation of computational flow or computational fluid dynamics. Um, there's an approximation, so, so we've never solved this particular equation. So if anybody wants to do it, I think there's still a million pounds on the table. So if you can come up with an exact answer to this equation, then, then that's still worth money. There's still money in hard mathematics. 
But, but what we're trying to do there is to replicate the, the pressures that are going around the car, both in terms of the, the fluid and also the aerodynamics. And what that means is that we have these beautiful mathematical models that just show exactly what we're doing in terms of the vehicle at each speed at, it, at all the different variations. And every time we came out with a different configuration, what we had to do is to rerun the calculations to actually work out exactly what the car should do. That's really interesting stuff again on our YouTube videos and places talking about why the, the back end of the car is flat rather than tapered uh, because a lot of the pressures actually replicate as it goes over the, the other area of the car. Uh, but you can see here just some of the beautiful areas. So this is the CFD meshing. You can see the car there, but you can also see the pressure, the build-up of all the pressures surrounding it. So we understand the environment in which it's working as well. And then what we needed for that was, was a massive, great big supercomputer cluster. So we were using more computer power than the, the Met Office um, for every single computation that we were doing. And the supercomputer really helped us in terms of speeding that whole process through. But what we need to do is to, to actually then prove it. Um, when Ron was first looking at computational fluid, fluid dynamics, um, nobody really trusted the mathematics at that time, Ron. But no one had ever used it for other than research purposes. So um, I couldn't use a winter tunnel. I didn't, uh, you know, I'd got to find some way of uh, uh, checking the design. So I made a 125th scale model, which you see there, and we accelerated it up to uh, 1,000 miles an hour. The car accelerates from naught up to 800 miles an hour in 0.8 of a second. That's about 50 g acceleration and then decelerates uh, about 30 g. But we've got pressure sensors underneath and over the car so we can actually measure the pressures on it and compare that with the theoretical predictions from computational fluid dynamics. And much to my surprise and delight, I found they tied up beautifully. <laughs> I mean, I didn't trust the experiment. I didn't trust the CFD. When they agree with each other, yes, they're both right. It was the only explanation. So um, that, uh, I think I can claim to have pioneered computational fluid dynamics as a design tool which is now currently used in aviation and in um, motor design before I did this with Thrust and then the JCB, Dieselmax, another of mine, no one had ever used it for uh, design purposes. So I can think I can claim that credit on that one. So, so why is this stuff important? This is Craig Breedlove. Um, they prove their car quickly because they have a rival. So this is at and the same time as we were building Thrust SSC? He's ahead in the race. His car has already got within 100 miles per hour of the sound barrier, a speed the British team can only dream of. Very, very American presentations. And unknown territory. But you can see that he was on sitting right on the right. nose of the vehicle here with a very wide haunch in terms of the car itself. His car suddenly flipped on its side and careered off course at 670 miles per hour. It was about 6.30 in English money. God almighty. Miraculously, it righted itself again, and Breedlove was unhurt. But you can see from that the importance in terms of getting the aerodynamics right. So, so in terms of understanding the pressures that are going on around the car and within the car, it's a really important concept. So once you've got that in terms of your head, then what you have to do is then start working on the design of the vehicle. So the vehicle layout is this. Uh, basically, it's a driver with a whole pile of fuel sitting right behind his head and then lots of engines, really. So, so our first engine is this. Uh, it's an EJ200. It's from a Eurofighter engine. Uh, sorry, it's from a Eurofighter. And, uh, and what you've got here is just some of the spectacular pictures you see from, uh, from the Eurofighter. Really magnificent piece of, of British engineering. Um, so we use one of those, um, but that's not really enough for us. So we then have this which is a Jaguar fuel pump. It's around about 500 brake horsepower. And we use that to pump a tonne of hydroperoxide in around about 24 seconds for a triple rocket system. Uh, that generates around about 135,000 brake horsepower. Uh, and a lot of that pump has to go through that fuel pump there, which actually came from the World War II. And what we did was we, we, um, uh, we remodeled it and then, then built it in three-dimensional printing. Um, if you look at this, this is, this is not our current rocket system, but I think 
sort of gives you an idea of what it might be like when you actually see the car run. So this is again at Newquay, uh, but it was a couple of years before. This was our first test of our 18-inch rocket system. Um, you normally test things in private first, um, so we invited the world's press and around about 600 school children. Um, but again, this is what this looks like. That's the combustion engine running that's getting up to speed before it starts pumping the hydroperoxide. That's a full-size aircraft. thing on the planet on that day. Um, we were actually very lucky that there weren't any volcanic eruptions, so in actual fact we are the loudest thing on the planet. So you can imagine what this car is going to be like. We've got a Eurofighter engine, which most people just come out to listen to and watch at all of the aircraft displays. Uh, we have a race engine, and then we have a triple rocket system. This thing is just going to be the most magnificent thing you've ever seen in your life as it goes across the desert. So basically what it is, it's got more power than a Boeing 737. It's a land-borne car. Um, it's less than a tenth of the weight of that particular aircraft, and really it's designed to carry one person, but with a primary objective of trying to inspire a new generation. Stopping the car is really quite important, as you can imagine. Um, and in actual fact, from, from my perspective, I think this is probably going to be one of the limitations in terms of the ultimate speed we can get to. Do, do you agree with that, Ron? <coughs> Absolutely. Uh, Andy Green has reminded us that being able to stop uh, confidently in the limited space available is the one op uh, operational requirement that is uh, not optional. Uh, so, uh, uh, to overcome that problem, we've got two parachutes and one set of air brakes. Individually or, or collectively, they can all stop the car. So, uh, we're trying very hard to make quite sure we satisfy his requirement. So just turning off the engines takes around about um, 160 miles an hour out of the speed, um, equivalent of a head-on car crash on the motorway, just, just by turning the engines off. So, so braking to us is very important. You also have to go through the measured mile at exactly the same point. So in other words, even if you move the, the measured mile to one end, then you wouldn't be able to stop the car. Or if you had more of a run-up, uh, again, you'd have, pretty, you'd have some problems. So it's really the length in terms of the run uh, that I think is going to be some of the limitations on the ultimate speed we can get to. So in order to do that, we need a very special person. I've mentioned him before, so it's Andy Green. Um, he describes himself as the world's fastest mathematician. Um, he's six foot three. He's the same age as me, but has worn much better. Um, and, and he's a really nice person. Um, he's a positive contributor to every element of the design of the car. Um, and really is a fantastic person in terms of both being an ambassador for our projects, uh, but also an ambassador for the RAF and also an ambassador for engineering. I think you'd agree, Ron. Absolutely. Um, from, from our perspective, um, he now does talks all over the country and all over the world. And really, it's, he's saying it's not just about building a car, it's about the story. And the story is a really important thing. If you ever read any of Richard Noble's books or any of the Campbell Dynasty books, the story behind it is really the backstop. And, and really what we're doing is we're building history and we're building a story behind it. But this is all about bringing science and technology to life for young people and really trying to make it an inspirational thing to achieve. Um, in terms of the, the pressures on the body, then there's lots of, lots of things going on. Um, it accelerates around about positive 3G. That's uncomfortable but not impossible. Um, but he holds it for a very long period of time. And at that point, the white corpuscles in your blood start to, start to change. Um, as you're accelerating, what you do is all the blood starts to drain from your, uh, from your brain, tries to make you pass out, because all the blood is going down towards your feet. Um, then you decelerate, so in other words, you turn the engines off, as I've described. You then go around about a 6G change. Um, that makes you feel like you're starting to drive down in the centre of the earth. Uh, Richard Noble had that every time he drove the car and never told anybody, in case they thought he was mad and they are stopping driving the car. At least Andy understands some of those physics associated with what's going on with the body, uh, but even so, Andy describes it as a very hostile environment. When you go into the deceleration, then all of the blood that's been draining into your legs now comes up back into your brain and tries to make you pass out as well. And you also have an awful lot of adrenaline pumping. And probably the most dangerous point is around about 350 miles an hour, uh, because at that point, all the adrenaline is still pumping. You can see every stone, apparently. Um, but he feels like he's going very slow, and in actual fact, he's still going very fast. 
So there's quite a lot going on there. And, and the other part we need is somewhere to run the car. Previously, um, the thrust team has run in Black Rock in Nevada, and, um, but unfortunately it hasn't rained there for the last six years. And what, what we want it to do is to rain and then it dries flat. So we worked with Google and NASA, uh, and Andy uh, took his, um, his new wife at that time around to see around about 12 or 13 different run sites. So that was his honeymoon, so he's not perfect. Um, and we found this, this place, which is called the Hatskin Pan. It's around about um, 25 kilometers away from where Donald Campbell ran in the 1920s. At that point, uh, Cobb had a better car, so there's no way he was ever going to take the record. So there's never been... Malcolm Campbell. Malcolm Campbell, I'm sorry. As I said, Ron is here to correct me. Um, um, and so, and so what, what happens there is that you can actually go and you can see where the stones have been moved all those years ago and nothing has changed. Um, we also had some problems with this surface, as you can see, uh, because it was full of stones. Um, and this is the aerial picture, which is about 12 and a half miles long. So we have around about um, five miles to, to speed up and around about five miles to slow down. It's also perfect for viewing, as you can see, because you've got a nice wide bit in the middle. Uh, and it also means that the runoff, which is a very important thing, that's what saved Breedlove in terms of having enough room to run the car off, uh, is really good for us. But if you look at this other picture here, there was originally some rows and things going through the middle of it. It was all fenced off. And so what we've had to do is to move all the stones, but also make good um, all of the, th all the packed areas. Um, for a lot of the year, this is what it looks like. Um, there's a really nice book over there about, about our project. Uh, this picture here is um, attributed to me. My wife took it. I just thought I'd say that. Um, and this is 12 and a half miles long by five miles wide and 18 inches deep. So you can put a pair of Wellington boots, walk across it, and it will never come in over the top. It is the most beautiful place. I, I travel a lot, and I travel a lot in Africa. I was fairly blasé about going to the run site and seeing what it looked like, and I was just blown away by how beautiful it was. And this is what it looks like. It's a great big pan. You drive over the top of the pan into these absolutely billiard-like flat surfaces. It is the most beautiful place. And at night, you can see the satellites and you can see the International Space Station going over the top. But we did have to clear the desert. So we've cleared thousands of tons worth of stones. Um, and that was done by 350 of the local families in around about four outlying villages, most of whom have never had paid work. We've paid them for around about two, two, two and a half years. Uh, but we've also had some other help. So, so these young lads here, uh, they were members of the One Case Supporters Club. Uh, their father took them out to 40 degrees heat in the middle of the desert to clear stones. I'm sure that went down really well over the dinner table when he announced that. Um, but really, it's probably something they're going to remember for the rest of their life. And this is a really important sign. So this is what people stop already and look at. So this is where we're going to run the car. But really importantly, if you look here, just behind it, uh, that's a tarmac road. Uh, we go from Uppington Airport, where all of the, um, all of the oranges are going to come for, for Christmas this year. Um, and they're flown into Uppington Airport. It was also the, the standby runway for the space shuttle, so it goes on for miles. And literally, we're going we're to land an Antonov or, or a very large container uh, aircraft um, in Uppington, uh, unload everything, drive it on tarmac to the run site. But that's exactly the same as you could do if you wanted to come and see the car run. It's really accessible and a beautiful place. That's just some of the beautiful pictures. There's some stunning pictures. But as I said, what we're trying to do is to inspire a new generation. And we want to share all of that design and all of that concept with as many people as we can in schools, colleges, and universities across the country. Uh, to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to have all those communications facilities in the car. So we're going to take all the data feeds off the car, put them into a central area, upload them to the internet, and then share them with the, share them with the world. Um, our website nearly fell over when we were at Newquay, um, and when Richard ran Trust SSC, when Andy was driving it, um, then we almost crashed the internet at that point. There was something like three million downloads going on at that point, and that was just straight data. We've got huge amounts of data being downloaded and video content and everything else. Um, we are already talking to the internet providers to make sure we've got enough bandwidth to make sure that we, we can continue. But the interesting thing is what we've done is we've not only supplied water into the region, so about 140 kilometers of, of water pipe, uh, which will allow the local people to make bricks, even more important than having water. Uh, but we've also put full 4G in terms of the whole region. Uh, you can make a telephone call from anywhere in that region. I can't make a telephone call from Walton on Thames into Waterloo without losing signal twice. So, so we're doing some good things, slightly flatter. And that's some of the network configuration diagrams that go in. So not only are we building a car, 
Uh, we're doing this huge export uh, to try to get it all to South Africa. You can imagine what our export license is like. Um, we want to take a Eurofighter. We well, can't really, that's military. No, no, we're going to put it in a car, don't worry about it. And then we want to take a tonne of aviation fuel. Well, that sounds like you're running the aircraft. No, we're not, don't worry, it's, that's not a problem. And then we've got hydroperoxide and, and, a, and, and a rocket system, which sounds a bit like a ballistic missile. Uh, but don't worry about it, we're going to stick it in the car and we're going to run it. And then what we're going to do is when we arrive there, we're going to put it on the equivalent of a, of a transportation vehicle that's, that's used for ballistic missiles. So you can imagine that everything we touch in this project is really hard from the export licenses right the way through to, to actually clearing the run site. Um, what we always do, um, we always try and find a ridiculous way of proving things. Um, so this is, this is testing the uh, configurations for the data, um, and, and it's just great fun. So again, if you look at all of our videos, they're just fantastic, really good fun, and I hope very informative. But this is what the schools are about. Um, at the end of this, we'll ask for questions. We'll have a 30-second break while people are brave enough to put their hand up. One person in the middle will, and then maybe a few more people will do it if they, if they don't feel um, too, too, uh, too embarrassed. Um, but we do this in schools, and this is the type of reaction we get. It's just magnificent in terms of the questions and in terms of the, the difficulty and, and understanding and sort of challenge that the young people have. There is no such thing as a stupid question. And I don't think I've ever had a stupid question from a child. Uh, we start off in, in schools by building balloon cars. Um, this, these pictures are actually taken in Slovenia. I had a 10-year-old um, asking me questions, not in his native language, and he knew the answers. It drooled over the whole website and knew everything about the project. The other thing I like about Slovenia is they have proper scissors with points um, so they can stab each other. I think, I think we've, we've lost the whole thing in our educational system by having stupid round scissors that you can't stab anybody with. But, but, but again, we're having an international reach. And then what we do is we move on from that into things like connects. And what we're doing there is we're looking at gravity, we're looking at friction, we're looking at gearing, and we're building things, having people actually manipulate things and build things, either from a plan or just to allow them to go off-piste and build whatever they like. The really interesting thing is that is what we're trying to do is inspire people. So, so I came up with the idea that if you took 12 basic building blocks, which is what Connects provide us with, and then we started to build something spectacular, it would be really exciting. So I phoned Connects and said, could I have 329,000 pieces, please? Uh, they put it on a ship and sent it over to me. Uh, then contacted the Royal British Legion, and, uh, and they built it for me. So we had about 140 people building uh, the largest um, Connects freestanding model in the world. And we launched that at Brooklyn's Museum. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough room. So now that's at Coventry Museum as well. So it's another reason to have a, to have a day trip out to Coventry. But it is magnificent. And really what it's doing is taking that concept for young people, saying that if you understand the basics and then you apply them and you don't let imagination be restriction, be a restricted act access, then really you can build whatever you like and your dreams can come true. So we're trying very hard to make things as, as beautiful as possible. Uh, it's very interesting. I have to send bits of connects quite regularly to Coventry because everybody nicks little bits off it. So, so if you have nicked any, if you could take it back, that would be really nice. But you can see this thing is huge. But we're also one of the largest users of microbits as well. Um, and we use the microbit competition uh, for our little rocket cars. So what we're doing with that is we're looking at uh, measuring the speed using little microbit computers. Uh, we're also using design stuff as well. We're doing a lot of virtual reality as well as augmented reality. And this is the type of thing that we do at schools. So that's doing around about 20 miles an hour. Uh, we take a rough average in terms of how long it takes. And at the end of the lesson, the kids run into the classrooms to do maths. It's really cool. Um, but what we're actually doing is we're trying to move forward. And this is Heathland School in Hounslow. I won't run too much of this, but just to give you an idea of what it looks like. up to around about 200 miles an hour in their playground. Um, the teacher who helped us with the timing traps um, used to ride a motorcycle up and down the, the, play, the, the um, tennis courts to make sure the speed was, was accurately measured. Uh, we had National Physical Laboratory come and actually do the timing for us for the Guinness Book of Records. Um, and then it was taken away from them um, by a school in the Midlands. 
Um, and then we ran out of room. So they said to me, could, could you find somewhere where we could run the car? So I phoned some friends of mine at Santa Pod Raceway. And I said, I've got some young children who want to run their rocket cars. Can I have the raceway? At which point they said yes. Um, and they dismissed it a little bit. But gradually, they were all coming out watching these cars run. And, and the Heathland school car has gone up to around about 550 miles an hour. Uh, they think there is a 600 mile an hour that car in there. And really what I was always hoping for when we launched this particular initiative uh, was that they would break the land speed record before we did. Uh, it's really fantastic. And the really nice thing about this is you then get the older children teaching the younger children what to do. And also you get teachers with rocket licenses as well, which I think is fantastic. We put all the vehicle together. It was a real effort to try and get the money and try to move the process forward. Um, we were probably a year behind where I thought we'd be um, because I was measuring up against the time it took us to build Thrust SSC. Um, but then we did a massive launch in Canary Wharf where we put as much of the car together as we could uh, to launch it to the public. Uh, we had about um, 11,000 people come and see us over a three-day period. Uh, it was mayhem, absolutely mayhem. Fantastic coverage. Uh, of moving a whole car forward and, and, and hopefully to then get the next uh, whole round of funding to allow us to, to progress to the next stage. Um, the scary thing was at that point, um, a lot of the money disappeared. And, and I spoke to Richard about this and I said, I don't really understand why the sponsors aren't now pouring money in to help us. And, and he said that a lot of people from the sponsorship side of things invest in a dream. And then when it starts to be looking like a far breathing animal, all of a sudden a lot of them get very nervous. So, so what we've done is we, we slowed the process down, but we kept on going. And then in New Key 2017, so only a couple of months ago, uh, we actually started to run the car in anger. Um, there was a number of reasons to do this. First of all, is to raise the public awareness. Um, I've got 32,000 people's names on the fin of the car. So if you're a bit stuck for anything for Christmas, it's 15 pounds. You get a really nice certificate. Uh, you can actually read your name. Mine's first, so it's not in alphabetical order. Um, but we, there's a little app to show you whereabouts your name is so you can actually put your name on the car. And everybody there, uh, we had young children come up with their certificates, wanting to get it signed and wanted to know where their names were and were really enthusiastic. It was a bit like Old Blue Peter saying, you know, we've contributed to this. We feel part of it. We feel active. But then we moved on to, to actually try to get the, the crowds. Um, and you can see from here, uh, we opened up the runway. This is a, a live runway. Uh, what we're doing there is we're waiting for all the aircraft to go, and then as soon as we get clearance, everybody is running to try to get the best position uh, to actually see the car run. It's quite difficult to choose where you wanted to do it because the middle bit was the fast bit. Uh, the front bit was where you actually saw the plumes coming out the back end of the jet engine, and the back end was where you actually saw the car turning around where the best pictures were. So, so we had a few runs, and a lot of people actually saw all sorts of different things. Uh, but really, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to do a tie-down. Uh, of the vehicle itself. And, and if you look at the videos associated with this, then this is actually making sure that we can run the car, sorry, run the jet engine at, at full, um, full pelt. Uh, and you can see here, around about here, you can see that that's where the engine is tied down. Uh, you can see the blocks for the, for the wheels being held. And then Andy's accelerating up into full afterburn. Do you want to And then what we've also got is, is we've got some fantastic footage in terms of actually running the car. And, and what I'll do is I'll flip back to that because that didn't work, but it's a really nice video. And that shows the amount of information that Andy's trying to get to in terms of running the car at speed. And also in terms of understanding exactly where we're going in terms of the vehicle itself. And everybody got fantastic pictures. Um, it was really good. I was really worried that, that people would say to us, it just looks like a jet engine with the wings cut off going up and down the runway not very fast. Uh, but in actual fact, the positive coverage we got in all of the newspapers and all the TV coverage was, was magnificent. Uh, we had around about 9,000 people come over three days. Uh, the last day was all orientated towards young people. All the local schools came. And, and we run the car in exactly the same way. We had lots of activities going on throughout the whole, throughout the whole exercise. Um, we also started to use some, some new camera technologies and things. Uh, but most of it was done on 30-pound little equivalents of GoPros. Um, so, so the camera technology we've now got available to us with this is just going to make the whole experience fantastic. Uh, the BBC did a lot of 3D coverage where they actually look around the vehicle and talk to the engineers. Um, and again, all of that is just really high-quality stuff and is available to anybody off our website.
But really, it's a massive team effort. We, we have a communications team, we have an engineering team, we have an aerodynamics team. Uh, the, whole, the whole concept behind this is trying to work together as a team. But from my perspective, it's extended beyond that. We have people that have been members of our supporters club now for 10 years, come to every single event, buy everything we try to sell, and are fantastic advocates. We have all of our STEM ambassadors going out into schools all the time. So as far as I'm concerned, anybody who speaks about engineering and science in schools to young people is, is part of our team. What next? Um, this was taken last weekend, so last Saturday. Um, and, and now it looks like we've got it all in bits again. And, and the interesting thing is the only time the car's not in bits is just before it's about to run. So, so that's a very important concept. But literally, we had two open days this weekend where we had hundreds of people come to see us, um, join the supporters club, come and see us anytime. It's a really ex exciting experience, I believe. You, you can touch things, you can stand next to things, you can take photographs, you can talk to the engineers. It's a completely open project, really, because what we're trying to do is to involve everybody as much as we can and make it a really interesting um, area to do. So these are some of the facts, six and a half tonnes. Um, it's 13.4 metres long, it's over three metres high. We've, there's a number of reasons for that. One would describe it as the aerodynamics to make it uh, more stable and we've had to have a bigger fin. Um, I would describe it that we wanted to put more people's names on it because uh, we wanted to generate more cash. Um, it's actually quite wide, but because it's so long, it looks fairly thin. I was also quite concerned because we've had the plastic model going around for, for a long period of time. Uh, but to actually see the vehicle in, in its purest sense um, is, is actually absolutely magnificent. So, so it's a really interesting thing to go and see and has a real presence whenever you stand next to it now in terms of the weight, the engineering and the quality of engineering throughout the whole thing. Um, I'll flip back. Ron, did you want to say a few words just while I try and find the videos that I wanted to run? Oh, sorry to do I'm that to you. I'm not expecting you to say anything that for it. But, um, uh, I've now been involved in the project for 11 years. We thought it would take at least five, we were right. Um, and um, the main problem has always been getting enough funding to employ sufficient engineers to complete the build. And we're still kind of uh, going up and down on funding. And uh, hopefully, in the near future, we will get some. But really what I thought I'd do is just describe what it would be like to actually be there and see the car running itself. Um, this is a really interesting piece of video. It, it, it's obviously not real, uh, but when we sent it to Fox News, they phoned us up and said it's a real shame we didn't let us know because we would have come and see the car run. Um, really worrying thing about American news bulletins. Um, but you can see here, that's the communications centre behind. That's where all the data feeds come off the car. Um, as I say, 300 data feeds, and all of that will be uploaded onto the internet for everybody to see. I had a 10-year-old the other day asking me why Andy was holding the vehicle uh, or, or accelerating with his left foot, and you'll see that in a minute after the configuration. Bloodhound SSC, you're cleared. Engine start. Bloodhound, engine start. Ready to roll. And you can see at that point what he's actually doing is holding on the holding on the jet engine. He's lifting off the brake to let the car run. But for a ten-year-old to notice that level of detail, I think he's magnificent. Leave the sound up a little bit. Um, so what we're doing here is we're accelerating relatively slow. We're going to sub two of the stones into the engine, um, and then gradually we go into afterburn, and then the car starts to accelerate really quickly. Very quickly we start the, the stage one rocket system. That's to get the Jaguar engine pumping so we can start pumping that hydroperoxide through the system. And then we go into the stage two, where as I say, we start pumping um, significant amounts of, of hydroperoxide very quickly. And the run rate goes up significantly and so does the acceleration. At this speed, the speed, uh, sorry, at this altitude, the speed of sound is around about 730, 740 miles an hour. So we're pushing through there. And at that point, the, the wheels start to liquefy on the back end. They're solid aluminium wheels. Uh, we're cutting the surface as we go through the, uh, through the desert. Uh, and that gives us this sideways traction as well as being able to move the car forward. It's about 55,000 radial G on each one of those wheels. We always run the car marginally unstable and then control it. Um, but we carry on accelerating through. So, so this is now coming towards the measured mark. We're hitting it around about 1,000 miles an hour. 
We're now going into the measured mile. You go one, two, three, we're out of the measured mile. It's around about four football pitches a second. Um, and he turns the rocket engines off, as I've said, that takes around about 160 miles an hour at the speed. Uh, we then start to use the braking system, which is why I wanted to show you the video. And, uh, and that gradually brings the car down to a halt. We then take it around in the great big circle. Um, we were looking at how we were going to turn the car around for quite some time. Uh, my, my vote was to get some Chinooks and lift it up and turn it around. Other people wanted to put an airbag underneath it and spin it. Some people wanted to bring the car onto a turntable and turn it around. And Rolls-Royce said, well, you have to cool the engines down. Why don't you just drive it around in the big circle? It's a real shame. I still like the idea of having a Chinook picking it up and turning it around. Um, so so that's, that's about the project, really. As I say, um, as, as we're going through the questions, I'll find my glasses and see if I can get those videos running. Um, but really, if you wanted to help us to support the project at all, you can put your name on the fin of the car. It's a great thing for Christmas. Um, it's the easiest thing to send to Australia if you're worried about trying to get things on time. You just send the PDF. You can join our supporters club and come and see the car run. You can also come and to all the builds and speak to the engineers. Uh, you become a STEM ambassador and go into schools and talk about the project, and it's really a joy going to talk to enthusiastic young people. Um, if you're working for a company, company donations and sponsorships are always open. And again, you can look at sponsorship from a product, an SME, or really a full uh, financial sponsor. But really, the most important thing we'd like you to do is just follow us. You know, talk about us, tell us what we're doing, uh, try and encourage any young people in your family to look at the project and just involve them in the whole thing to make sure that they fully understand what it is and what we're trying to achieve. From my perspective, this is one of the most magnificent projects uh, that's, that's in the UK at the moment. We have a massive, great big union jack on the tail of our car at a time when we really need it. Uh, and really, it makes me very proud to be British, to be involved in this project, and, and hugely proud to be able to sit next to Ron and, and actually do this type of presentation to you all. So, so thank you very much indeed. I, I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Glover and Ron Ayres, thank you very much indeed. Now, I'm sure, as Ian said earlier, there are no stupid questions. So, who's going to be the first? Someone in the middle, thank you. Ian, um, I suppose the question everybody wants to know the answer to, when do you think it'll actually run? Um, so, we're going to make an uh, announcement fairly soon about the, um, what we class as being low-speed runs in, in South Africa. Uh, we are genuinely hoping to get out there for this year. Um, what it's dependent, sorry, 2018. As I say, the only reason Ron's here is to connect to all of my mistakes. So, so 2018. Um, it, it's very much dependent on the money, and it's very much dependent on holding the team together. We, we know what we're going to build, um, we know how to build it, and now it's a case of trying to pull the sponsors in to, to make sure we can actually achieve it. Another question? Sorry, the low speed runs will be around about 600 miles an hour. Uh, Ron, you'd like to go through the speed? Uh, I think uh, the first year we'll be running without rockets, but it's just with the Eurofighter jet engine. My calculation that should get it up to 650 miles an hour. We'll soon, soon see if I'm right. <laughs> yes, sir. Just wondered, you mentioned about the braking system, and just wondered what the primary braking system was. Well, the primary braking system is the air brake, and um, that will decelerate the car to start with at about 3G. So uh, 3G deceleration, if you did it on the road, you'd probably call it a crash. Um, it's uh, very severe. Um, if the air brake does not open, and you've seen pictures of it, it just uh, opens up like a big uh, umbrella. Um, if that doesn't work, you've got two... Uh, Pa uh, parachutes, either of which can stop the car, um, and they're deployed at about 650 miles an hour if they're needed. And the final stage is uh, disc brakes, um, rather like Formula One disc brakes. Um, when we tested them on the runway at New Quay, uh, they were glowing white hot, and this frightened the air traffic controller to death. He said, should we send in the, uh, uh, the fire brigade to put it out? No, no, they're meant to be like that. You know? So um, um, 
Uh, yes, we, we, we've got a very complex uh, braking system, but as I said uh, uh, early on, it is the one thing that is absolutely essential. doesn't matter how fast you go, long as you can stop. We've got some 800 Bloodhound ambassadors. These are ordinary uh, people that want to uh, volunteer. They're very likely to have some engineering or relevant background, uh, but we will train them on Bloodhound. Uh, they can... Uh, they will be equipped with the Bloodhound Ambassador's uh, kit and anything you need to demonstrate. And they go into schools, perhaps their local schools, and get them enthusiastic about, uh, about the project. So if you feel that way inclined, or know anybody that does, uh, contact them on our website and you can become a Bloodhound Ambassador. So at last, this is a very consistent. Again, take a really quick moment of GoPro. Um, it's just starting to increase the brakes at 200 miles an hour. And you can see them starting to glow red hot, and then white hot, which is around about 1,000 degrees. And, that, and that's at 200 miles an hour on the runway. And literally all you did was flip the car. So all the, all the pictures you've got of the car running up and down the runway, a lot of the impressive stuff is actually going on underneath to actually see what was going on, even just to stop the car. Is that a cast or ceramic? Uh, uh, that's, uh, those are uh, carbon fibre, they're similar to, to the ones that are used in Formula One, uh, but we can't use those on the desert. Because when we're going at a thousand miles an hour and those are rotating at more than 10,000 RPM, they explode. <laughs> um, we've tested Formula One ones and uh, other carbon fibre. We haven't found one that will uh, uh, survive at a thousand miles an hour. So we go back to the old fashioned state, uh, steel discs uh, for when we're going on the desert. And I'll just I'll show you this is the the jet going into afterburn. And if you look at the tension there in terms of the, the pressure on the car. And you've also got somebody there with, with a full rated um, set of headphones there uh, that's putting his hands over the top of his ears because it's so noisy. So again, some of the pictures and things we're, we're getting now are just incredible. And this is Andy driving the car. And about 15 minutes before, they had, um, they had normal aircraft taking off. And, I, and you could see them circling round, trying to see what was going on as they were, as they were flying off. They were going off to Guernsey. Yeah. If it looks that good, just going 200 miles an hour, imagine what it's going to be like doing a thousand. Another question in the front here. Uh, yeah. Sorry, my, my voice is going. I can't believe it was 20 years ago, but I remember you telling us that in, if, in the event of the nose lifting on thrust SSC, you had two very interesting systems that would hold it down. Yep. What changes are, are, will be taking place in Bloodhound? Uh, well. I started designing uh, Thrust SSC in about uh, 1992 or three. Um, at that stage, it, uh, Thrust SSC was the first car I'd ever designed. So starting with the supersonic one was probably not a good idea. But um, uh, so there was an awful lot I had to learn. 
And um, at that stage, again, I was only learning about computation for dynamics and all the other things. So it was very much a kind of a learner's vehicle, despite the fact that it went faster than the speed of sound. Now I know an awful lot more, and I can design the shape so that the car, so the wheels all stay on the ground at all speeds, and they only stay on uh, pushing down hard enough. They don't crush the suspension and getting that balance right. So it got uh, force on the ground right the way from north up to 1,000 miles an hour. That took me two and a half years of research before I could find a shape that would do that. It's that difficult. But um, the car stays on the ground because it wants to stay on the ground. That's my job to make sure it does. Or as Andy puts it, shiny side on top, pointy end in front and four wheels on the ground. <laughs> Another question here. Uh, yes, you, you've sort of answered the question I was going to ask, actually, but I'll modify it. What proportion of the weight has to be on the ground or be supported by the four wheels to show that it's actually a land speed record rather than a, an airspeed record? Um, it, you don't have to have any particular weight, but you've got to have a continuous track, and we certainly have that. Um, but um, uh, no, I mean, you could have, uh, kind of, uh, you know, could one kilogram of uh, weight on the ground and that would still count. In actual fact, we insist on what, not less than one tonne on each wheel uh, for safety reasons and stability. So you've got wheels nearly off the ground and you've got no control. But um, so uh, at least one tonne on the ground. But, Another thing is happening. Um, because the shockways under the wheels are penetrating this porous desert surface, they're, they're fluidizing it so that we're actually water skiing on fluidized sand. Um, now, the effect of that is that there's now no lateral control either. We can slither around. So it's being kept nose forward by having that blooming great fin on the back. And the steering is by the aerodynamic forces on the wheels on the front. Uh, that's much more powerful than the wheel-to-ground interaction. So it's now a purely fluid dynamic vehicle. It has the same dynamics, I suppose, as a supersonic hydrofoil or hovercraft. No one's ever done the dynamics of that yet, so that's my next job. <laughs> Question here, gentlemen. Just something about the wheels. Um, I can remember years ago when they were sort of, I think it was in Bluebird days, they were always saying wheels and tyres and that were a problem, and that was at lower speeds. <coughs> Is there any sort of real problems with a thousand mile an hour on a, on a wheel? Yes, there are plenty of problems. Um, indeed, when we started this project, we didn't say we are going to do a thousand miles an hour. We said this is a uh, an experiment to see if a thousand miles an hour is possible because we did not know at that stage whether we could even design wheels that would survive at that. It took us seven and a half years work with combined assistance of Rolls-Royce and Lockheed Martin UK uh, before we overcame all the problems to say yes we have uh, designed a wheel that will survive survive at a thousand miles an hour and take all the vibrations and bashes, etc. It's by, by far the perhaps most individually most difficult job of all was designing the wheels. Okay, we've got a couple of questions over this side now, gentlemen. If I can remember who's who. There we go. Oh, thank you. Yeah, given the the rapid development of technology over the last ten years, the which is about the runtime of the, of the project, particularly in autonomous vehicle controls. So two questions in one. When do you freeze the configuration and do you need Andy anymore? Could, could the thing drive itself and, or would that still count? Well, first of all, you never freeze the configuration. Um, the, the final run will be the frozen configuration. Up to that, it's always experimenting and always exploring. For instance, one of the things that we might well do if the technology becomes available, we may, instead of having a Jaguar engine acting as a fuel pump, we may have an electric motor 
acting as a fuel pump. Well, that means having a huge great battery on board, and this will be pushing modern battery technology and electric propulsion technology um, to their absolute limits. But it is possible that we might do it a thousand miles an hour with um, uh, an electric uh, uh, power system to drive our uh, rocket motor. I've forgotten what your other question was. So, so Andy needs to be in the car. So, so it, has to, it has to be in control of the vehicle, uh, and, yes. and Andy is a very active participant. If you ever look at any of the videos, particularly on Thrust yep. SSC, it's a very hostile environment. Yeah, you don't get a record unless there's someone in the car. And um, he's got to be controlling it, not a passenger. Um, so it can't be controlled by a computer. So um, that is what the land speed record has been like since 1898. Uh, it's a, uh, a human... Uh, endeavour of travelling fast. It's not a mechanical thing. Okay, another question here, gentlemen. Continuing with the wheels, if I may. Um, I think Bugatti are having trouble finding a wheel and a tyre that will go 313 miles an hour. Now, yours is going slightly faster, three times that speed, so the tangential speed will be about 2,000 miles an hour. Can you talk us through the materials you're using and the connections and all those things. This seems to me to be the holy grail of the whole thing, or one of the holy grails. Sure. And you took seven years, did you say? Well, first of all, uh, the wheels are solid aluminium. There are no tyres. The tyres will just get thrown off. There is no kind of rubber or anything that would do that. So your friend at 300 miles an hour, yes, that is getting to, you know, pushing tyre uh, limits a bit but we don't have tyres. It is a solid aluminium forging, um, and um, uh, it made by a team of... Uh, uh, well, by, the forging was done by a German team, and then it went to Scotland, and a, a team of eight companies made a consortium to do all the uh, detailed work, like the machining, the balancing, the, t the heat treatment, etc. And this was quite nice because uh, um, Glasgow Herald got to hear of these uh, um, Scottish companies and they ran a magnificent headline, a bloodhound will run on Scottish wheels. Um, and after that, each of these companies never had any problem getting apprenticeships. Uh, before that, they could never, never get applicants. After that, they've now got plenty of applications for apprenticeships. So we have big impact on, local, on in, uh, industry as well. Okay, any other questions? Oh, right, that was close. Yes, over, obviously, if you look at the history of the land speed record, um, there have been incremental increases. This must be not just in terms of miles per hour, but also as a percentage. Yep. The biggest increase anyone's ever done. It must be, I mean, I, my rough calculation is about a third faster than ever been done before. Yeah, that well, sounds a huge leap. Yep. Um, normally speaking, as you're quite right, most people, they would get 1% faster than the uh, previous record, which they had to do in order to claim a record, make sure there's no uh, miscalculation. Um, uh, thrust SSC was 20% faster than the previous record, which is by far the biggest increment ever, um, uh, both in absolute terms and in percentage terms. This will be 31% faster than we went last time, which means if we get to 1,000 miles an hour, that will be 60% faster than any other team in the world has ever done. So there's nothing modest about our ambitions. <laughs> I think that answers we've, we've, that. We're also, we're also all getting very old, and so what we want to do is to put it so far out of sight that it's going to last a very long time. <laughs> now make the way round to the gentleman over the far side. So if you can just bear with me for a moment. Where were we? Yes, sir, there we go. I have a very simple question. Why do you call it bloodhound? That's one of Ron's questions. About 50 years ago, I was working on... I mean, I'm an aircraft designer and then went into guided weapons and all sorts of things. I was working on the Bloodhound anti-aircraft weapon uh, at Bristol and it was the primary uh, air defence of the United Kingdom during the uh, uh, original Cold War. 
and um, that was called Bloodhound. Now, fast forward back to about uh, 10 or 11 years ago when we started this project, I was recovering from cancer and chemotherapy and things, so I couldn't travel. So we were doing the design in my dining room, and um, we decided we'd better have a name for this project we're doing. And on the wall, there's a picture of the Bloodhound weapon, so we said, oh yeah, we call it Bloodhound then. <laughs> and, that, and that was it. Ironically, we're now building this Bloodhound back in Bristol, which is where the Bristol Bloodhound anti-aircraft weapon originally was. So the counter question to that is that um, we've now moved into the age of the internet. And, uh, and Bloodhound was always going to be the code word. And we talked about a lot in terms of making sure there was a continuation of the brand. Uh, but now if you, if you search on thrust um, on the internet, you tend to get a, quite a wide variation of different things that, that, that might, not, might not be that appropriate in a school's environment. So, 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 so that's also another reason for it as well, which is why you kept it. I think that's a very nice, um, perhaps, question to end on, unless there's one more that someone may have. Okay, well, ladies also, and gentlemen. Uh, before, before you finish, one other thing I want to say. You're in charge, sir. <laughs> um, we, uh, we've spoken a lot about the car itself, but um, all the data we've got on, uh, we'll be generating on board, and that over 500 instruments will be uh, uh, transmitted live, that is 500 television quality channels, so, you know, uh, uh, very high specification channels, transmitted live while we are travelling at a thousand miles an hour. Now that is an enormously complex and difficult thing. Um, and uh, it then is tra uh, transmitted um, uh, indirectly right the way up to the cloud, and as someone said, well, in order to take data at that rate, we might need to modify the cloud a bit. <laughs> and I've never heard of a cloud being modified, but we are literally pushing all the data, all the limits, and the data will be available to anybody, school children, researchers, uh, engineers. Um, we're not charging for it. We go there so that schools can use the data to uh, prove Newton's laws of motion, and they can run their lessons from it. Uh, some already do. Uh, so um, when we say we're doing this for education purposes, that is one of the reasons that we're doing it. But because the um, data is such an important part of the project, uh, one of our sponsors now is Oracle. Now you all know Oracle, huge, great company. They see us as a huge opportunity to show what they can do with data and how they can use the cloud and how we can use the cloud. So again, we're pushing lots of uh, technologies in lots of directions. Keep on. Ron, you're a remarkable man. <laughs> Thank you both for being here this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause. Thank you very much. our technology to set the raffle up looking slightly under what you've achieved just while Jake does it as I said earlier um, tonight is our last talk of 2017 uh, we've had 20 of them this year um, I'd like to thank the team for putting together a remarkable set of talks this year so with your appreciation to the team that's put this together thank you very much. Without your participation, it would all be of no use at all. So thank you all for being here for those 20 talks. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.